So what caused the world to break out in the most terrible total war in 1939, less than 21 years after the previous war had ended? Well, we all know the usual list. We vaguely remember a series of political blunders and crises. The Rhineland, Austria, Munich, Adolf Hitler, a ruthless madman, possessed by an insane belief in the destiny of the Aryan people and their historical right to the whole of the centre of Europe. We blame appeasement, the policy in the late 1930s of the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. He believed, or so we're told, that if he gave Hitler everything he demanded, he would one day stop demanding more. Well, these are the kind of stories people were told at the time, and like all propaganda, they're partly true. Certainly nobody can ever gloss over the aggression of Hitler and the Third Reich. But underneath all of this, driving the events of the 1920s and 30s along was something much more powerful. This is a story that starts not in Germany, not in Britain, but in the United States of America. This is a story about money. Good to see you at the History Cafe. Thanks for joining us. This is where we come to give a new take on history. We revisit well-known stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look right anymore. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Rosebank, and I suppose we have the best job in the world. I think we do. We take the latest research and we ask the questions that nobody else seems to, and we put it all into stories everyone can enjoy. So find yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see where we end up. Anybody who's ever had to churn out the causes of anything in history usually ends up with a list. If we'd been properly taught, we might end up with a diagram. Now, we could do the same for the Second World War. All those various causes that we traditionally discuss are important. But let's cut to the chase. Right at the deepest level of all, the Second World War was caused by money. We say it because as soon as you start to look at the finances, you realise that there is a central unexplained mystery. The First World War had left Europe effectively bankrupt and the Germans in a worse case than any other nation. They were carefully blamed for the war in the peace treaties, specifically in order that they could be made to pay for it. In other words, the Germans were expected to repay the mind-numbing sums that the British and French had forked out fighting them. Part of the point of that, particularly from the French point of view, was to beggar the Germans so comprehensively that they could never, ever attack France again. And if that wasn't daunting enough, after the Wall Street crash in October 1929, Europe's economies span into profound depression. And again, Germany was worse hit than anyone else. So here's the riddle. It should have been completely economically impossible for the Germans to rearm themselves virtually from scratch and launch a new war less than 10 years on from the meltdown on Wall Street. And above all, a conflict that was fought with tanks, trucks and aeroplanes, the very expensive new hardware of total war. And all this was done by a country that had to buy virtually every ounce of its raw materials and to import much of its coal and all of its oil. Well, it simply doesn't add up. It's the completely basic question that, for whatever reason, historians have been reluctant to ask. The British and the French struggled to rearm, and by 1939 were many months behind Hitler's Germany. Until the war had begun, Hitler didn't use slave labour. His Third Reich paid for everything it used. 
So the Second World War should have been utterly impossible, financially impossible, so soon after the economic carnage of the first one, let alone the human catastrophe. And also, within a few years of the greatest financial crash the world had at that time ever seen. So how on earth did it happen? It's a story that has taken us by surprise at every single turn. So let's leave the big historical textbooks until later and start with Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn? Yeah, or more precisely, (laughs) a British journalist called Charles Hyam, who back in the 1970s was writing a book about the Hollywood swashbuckling romantic lead. Actually... In an astonishing burst of activity, Hyam was writing biographies on Errol Flynn, Merle Oberon, Orson Welles and Lucille Ball all at the same time. You get the picture. Hyam was a journalist, but serious about his work and writing popular stuff, not to say sometimes sensationalist. Now, there had for a long time been dark hints that back in the 1930s, Errol Flynn had had sympathy with the Nazis. So Hyam made some routine checks among the government's documents. He had to apply for a number of files to be declassified before he could see them. And when they were, Hyam was in for a shock. Forget about Errol Flynn. Forget about Errol Flynn. All kinds of Americans seem to have been under investigation by various parts of the American government in the 1930s. And even more shockingly, throughout the war and in the years immediately afterwards. And they were being investigated for working with the Nazis, raising finance for them, making cars and trucks for them, running their data collection and communications, supplying them with oil and all kinds of other wartime essentials. And these Americans included the top executives of leading US firms. Ford Cars, my dad used to work for them, General Motors, Chase Bank, the communications giant ITT, Standard Oil. That's S-O to the Brits. S-O, Standard Oil. (laughs) I never realised that. And many others. So once Hyam had finished his biography of Errol Flynn, he sat down and wrote a book collecting all this evidence and called it Trading with the Enemy. Well, Hyam's book first came out in 1983. In chapter after chapter after chapter, he quotes from boardroom meetings and corporate correspondence, some of it from papers he'd turned up in a lawyer's garage. Hyam also found reports from the US Treasury, the Department of Justice and other government departments, including even FBI intelligence reports. The story he tells is of an extraordinary network of American businesses and finance, which he alleges kept the Nazis in business throughout the 30s and even, much more shockingly, throughout the war. Hyam thought that he'd uncovered a web of connections that spread across the world, drawing in some of America's best-known industrialists, implicating departments of the American wartime administration, even touching British royalty. Now, this is a series that is not just about Hyam's book, but can any of that possibly have been true? And if it was, why why didn't didn't we know about it? In 1983, the British journalist Charles Hyam published a book that claimed to show the existence of a network of American finance and business that enabled Nazi Germany to rearm in the 1930s and sustain gruelling total war for six years. Now, if Hyam was right, it would begin to answer the question, how on earth Germany emerged from the complete financial wreckage of the First World War and then the Wall Street crash and just six years after Hitler had taken power, inflicted the world's best-equipped army 
on the rest of Europe. Well, you know that at the History Cafe, we steer well wide of conspiracy theories. And for what it's worth, Hyam's sensationalist book on Errol Flynn has been pretty comprehensively trashed for its unsupported allegations. But you have to say that there is something about Hyam's research in trading with the enemy, if not his sensational conclusions, that just won't go away. Over the last 15 or 20 years, historians have been quietly looking again at the businesses of the 1930s and 1940s. Well, Hyam's book doesn't get mentioned much, of course, but what we now know backs up a good deal of the information he uncovered, if not his conclusions. We now have a much broader and better context for the details he was coming across in all those documents. Factual information, indeed, that's never been seriously contested. What we're starting to see is not a conspiracy to keep the Nazis in power, a Nazi-American money plot, as he called it, but something more profoundly disturbing. We're beginning to understand that there was an economic and financial culture stretching far beyond Germany and America that put profit a very long way before people, even when millions of people died in war and in gas chambers. Now, that has the ring of reality about it because these creatures are still with us. They inhabit the offices of Big Pharma. They gather, for example, every year at the Defence and Security Equipment International Arms Sales event in London, in the Excel Centre. Yeah. In fact, it's just finished this year as we're recording this. A thing that you can't even go and protest at in England. No, because of the new police and crime bill, which means you can't even make a silent protest. You can't even hold up a blank piece of paper. For decades, these kind of people have run tobacco and oil companies, not to mention governments, in the full scientifically researched knowledge that they are killing people and destroying the planet. These individuals apparently regard themselves as above democracy and ethics and account millions of avoidable deaths as the acceptable price of turning a profit for themselves. So the real story that needs telling here about the causes of the Second World War is that human suffering is what inevitably follows if you hand power to businesses. Or indeed governments run by businesses. Just, just, see what <laughs> okay. during the, just see what happened during the Covid pandemic. Anyway, enough preaching. Let's tell the story. Ford Motor Company began investing in Germany in the 1920s. Well, we shouldn't read too much into that. Famously, Henry Ford had for years been openly and notoriously anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And the New York Times, for example, reported Adolf Hitler's admiration for him in December 1922. But look, that's the point. That was long before Hitler was a household name, even in Germany. Ford Motors didn't invest in Germany because of Hitler. They were there because it was continental Europe's largest market. And the Germans were actively looking for American investment. Ford had actually been exporting cars to Germany since the early years of the century. But because American cars had the reputation for being badly made, Ford had the idea of manufacturing cars in the United States, as he always did, then taking them apart and exporting them as kits and getting them reassembled locally. It was a policy Ford adopted in a number of countries. From 1925, Ford started importing kits to Germany from Ford Denmark. Using those parts, Ford Germany was able to start turning out what it could call German-built trucks in April 1926, and the famous Model Ts built in Germany a couple of months later. In 1927, the Germans, struggling to get their economy back together, imposed tariffs on imports, import duties. But they included duties on car parts. 
So Ford took the decision to begin making cars in Germany. They invested $4 million in a 52-acre factory in Cologne in 1929. Well, nothing surprising about that. Business, as we shall see, wasn't so good in America in those years, and Ford was on its way to being the second largest car maker in Germany. This new German Ford outfit would be 60% owned by Ford England, which was in turn 60% owned by Ford America. The rest of Ford Germany was owned by local companies, which was good for winning local support. 15% was bought by the chemicals giant IG Farben. Which was in fact the company that would later produce Zyklon B, the cyanide gas used in the gas chambers. But that was over a decade into the future. And in 1929, IG Farben was simply the largest German business, the behemoth merger of three chemical companies in 1925. The first car motored out of Ford Cologne in May 1931. So far, so apparently unsurprising. Ford had already had operations in 14 countries before the First World War. In 1929, another American automobile giant, General Motors, bought 80% of the German car manufacturer's Opel. They picked up the rest in 1931, paying over $33 million in all. General Motors' Opel became the largest car manufacturers in Germany. GM also had long-standing operations in Britain and Canada. Another American company, IBM, had taken over Diermack, a German business machine company, and run it since 1922. Standard Oil of New Jersey also heavily invested in Germany, amongst other places, in the 1920s. Norton of Worcester, Massachusetts, also invested in Germany, where they made bonded adhesives for industry. There was also the telephone company ITT. Which bought the German electrotechnical company AEG in late 1929. Again, nothing sinister here. ITT had had Spanish, Romanian, Swedish, Hungarian subsidiaries, as well as connections all over South America. In 1929, Carl Siemens, chair of Siemens, the German electronics business, complained that, quote, the whole world belongs to the Americans. Well, perhaps it was more true than he knew. What we see in the 1920s and early 1930s was American money crossing to Europe, building factories, buying up German companies and dominating key sectors of the German market, especially automobiles and oil. A few British firms, like Dunlop Rubber and the government-owned Anglo-Persian Oil, also invested in Germany. Well, so did Scandinavian firms like the Swedish SKF, who made ball bearings. They also actually had a factory in Philadelphia. In the other direction... The German giant IG Farben had an American subsidiary, General Anline Film and Dyes. The leading German machine makers, Bosch, also had an American company. Bosch and IG Farben, in fact, had connections in Latin America, France, Britain, Canada, Australia, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Scandinavia, oh, and other places too. Yeah, eventually in the 1930s, Bosch had fingers in 29 different companies around the world, including Ascot Heaters in the UK. Interesting. But the striking thing is that these German companies investing outside Germany were the exceptions. Most German companies, like, for example, Siemens, the electrical engineer, seem to have lost their international subsidiaries in the aftermath of World War I as the German economy fell apart. As Carl Siemens said, it was now the Americans who seemed to be buying the rest of the world up. This strikingly lopsided imbalance between America and Europe was in large measure the result of policy on the part of the American government. 
American official policy from 1917 worked to suppress, well, I might even say wreck, the economies of Europe. When we tell the story of the First World War, we usually tell a story of mud, machines and men with a few women and trenches and tactics. Check out our series, which we call Nightmare in the Trenches. But there's another whole story we rarely get to hear, and that's about money. The First World War was being paid for, not just out of taxes, but much more out of borrowing. There was no way the British or French or indeed the German governments could possibly have afforded the enormous forces they threw at each other or the explosives they blew each other up with. The British and French didn't even have the factories, let alone the workforce, to construct the weapons they used. Britain's First World War was in fact largely being financed by John Pierpont Morgan Jr., J.P. Morgan, through his New York bank. On behalf of his client, the British government, J.P. Morgan raised mind-numbing loans across America, which were then spent buying weapons from American factories at vastly inflated prices. Now, the overwhelming majority of ordinary Americans wanted nothing to do with this European war. We're talking about the First World War. Oh, why should they? I mean, it has nothing to do with them. But they appear to have been exceedingly happy to make money from it. They would willingly have sold weapons to both sides had the British Navy not prevented all but a handful of ships ever reaching the Germans. Historian Adam Toos has shown that by 1916, the Americans were actually seriously considering building a new navy to bust their way through the British blockade so that they could start lending and selling to the Germans too. <laughs> That's extraordinary. But then the situation changed. You see, normally you can't go on borrowing unless you have security, a house or a business or the prospect of an income that the creditor can use, if necessary, to reclaim their money. By the end of 1916, the British, who had in turn loaned vast sums to the Russians and the French and others, were running out of anything to use as security. How would they ever be able to repay all this money? One very significant reason the British and its allied armies tried to break through the German lines on the Somme and end the war in the second half of 1916, and don't believe anyone who tries to claim that wasn't what they were trying to do, look at our series on the Somme. One of the reasons they tried to break through was that they were running desperately short of credit. At one point, they believed they had barely a few weeks of money left to go on fighting the war. They had to end the war soon, somehow. But then the big push on the Somme achieved virtually nothing. So why would anyone now go on lending to them? Well, at this point, a remarkable thing happened. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, a rather preachy academic, had, like most Americans, been adamant that his country would not join the war. In fact, he tried to prevent the banker J.P. Morgan from raising any more money for it. But, like any other American, President Wilson could see that the British were running out of cash. And if that happened, they'd no longer be able to fight. And if the Germans defeated the British, then all the money the Americans had already loaned to the British might, probably would, be lost. It would be a financial catastrophe for the Americans. Which is, of course, the real reason the Americans took the decision to declare war on Germany in 1917. If you want to understand how it was that American businesses ended up investing so heavily in Germany in the 20s and 30s that eventually they enabled Hitler to arm the fascist Third Reich, then you have to start 
by going back to the First World War. By the end of 1916, Britain and France had fought what was then a modern mechanised war for two years, firing off millions of shells, leading to hundreds of thousands of deaths. They'd only been able to do it by borrowing from Americans. By the end of 1916, they were financially exhausted, and there was a possibility that those American loans might never be paid back. So now the American president, Woodrow Wilson, took a hand. It's a story, in fact, you can find in a book called The Road Less Travelled, published in 2021 by Philip Zelikoff, a former diplomat to the US State Department and now a historian. Zelikoff shows how President Wilson threw himself into trying to negotiate peace in Europe. Remarkably, he discovered he had an ally, Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, the German Chancellor. Bethmann-Holweg knew that his country, just like his British and French enemies, could not go on raising the cash to fight for much longer. So the Germans under Bethmann-Holweg joined President Wilson's calls for a negotiated peace. For purely financial reasons, the whole terrible carnage in the trenches could and should have been over by Christmas 1916. But it wasn't. Partly that was because President Wilson was slow, overcautious, too academic, too detached from the realities of the war, too badly advised on the realities of the situation to put together a credible plan. Partly it was because there were too many people in France and Germany and, as it turns out, above all in Britain, who refused to give up, whatever the financial consequences. A new government took over in Britain under David Lloyd George that was determined somehow to fight through to the end. And within months, Bethmann Holweg had been toppled in Berlin and Germany was being run, in effect, by a military dictatorship. Whatever the cost, the carnage would go on. So, on the 6th of April 1917, the Americans declared war on Germany. Now, they emphatically did not ally with Britain or France. The reason publicly given for going to war was that German U-boats were sinking American shipping. And that was a reason. Another was the revolution that had just toppled Russia's Tsar. The new provisional government in St. Petersburg was committed to continuing the war against Germany, but the future looked extremely uncertain. And if the Russian military performance grew much weaker than it already was, then the Germans might soon be in a position to transfer significant forces to the Western Front. And if they did, and if the French and British couldn't hold out, millions of dollars of American money could end up buried in the mud of Flanders. So President Wilson puffed on about fighting for democracy and freedom. But in reality, what the Americans were fighting for was primarily to protect their cash. The British and French had to win, or at least not to lose, so that all those American loans could be paid back. And now there was a significant change in the money situation. With no more British and French credit to take out private loans, it was the American government that now began lending to them. And that was so that its new fighting partners... Yeah, yeah, not allies, no, partners. Mm. ...could buy weaponry from American factories at enormously high prices. Sometimes as high as 80% profit. So high that the American government itself was slapping taxes on excess profits. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. So this was an almost unprecedented situation. Look, normally when countries fight alongside each other in a common cause, they give money or weapons to each other. That's what's been happening as we're writing and recording this podcast in Ukraine. 
the NATO countries aren't lending Ukraine the weapons to fight the Russians. The Ukrainians could never pay back the cost of all the technology they've received. Common cause, common resources. When you fight together, you share what you have. The striking fact is that the Americans had only been able to win their own independence back in the War of 1776 to 1783, War of American Independence, because the French had given them enormous sums of money to fight the British. That's given them the money. After all, in the 18th century, the French were only too happy to make common cause with the Americans against the British. And when, a generation later, the British joined the Russians, Austrians and Prussians to defeat the French under Napoleon... The British gave their allies the money to do it. That's gave their allies the money to do it. <laughs> the borrowing the British government had to do then to fund the campaign against Napoleon dwarfs anything we've ever seen since. And no, borrowing on that scale did not lead the British economy to collapse, as politicians have been trying to claim ever since Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, there's not enough money. It was in fact followed by full steam ahead in the Industrial Revolution, the greatest period of British prosperity in its entire history. Anyway, back in 1917, the Americans refused to give anything to anyone. I'm sorry, it's worth saying again. Back in 1917, the Americans refused to give anything to anyone even though the war was now, in a significant measure, being fought to protect the Americans' own financial investments, they made it quite clear to the British and the French that if they needed any more money to keep on fighting, they would have to borrow it. And to add insult to financial injury, America didn't even have an army that could go to Europe. They had to recruit and train one from scratch. As a result... Not a single American soldier stepped onto a battlefield in Europe for more than six months. And it was over a year before the Americans undertook anything approaching a full-scale military operation. And during all those months, all the fighting and the dying... In what was now quite as much a war for the Americans' own financial interests as anything else. All the fighting and the dying was done by the British and French and their colonies and allies. But even so, the American government told its taxpayers that they would not have to pay a cent the war would all be paid for by the British and French paying interest on the vast new sums they were borrowing from the US government. We began this discussion by posing a riddle. How on earth could the German Third Reich afford to go to war in 1939, so soon after the catastrophic expense of the First World War and the collapse of the European and American economies after the Wall Street crash? Well, we've begun to find the first clues to an answer. It was above all the Americans who invested heavily in Germany in the 1920s and 30s and who created the financial conditions for Hitler's rearmament. It was as if, as the German industrialist Karl Siemens put it, the Americans were buying up the whole world. And the reason that in the 1920s and 30s the Americans seemed to have all the money and everybody else had very little was that the Americans had made a vast fortune from the First World War. And they'd done it by forcing the Europeans systematically to destroy their own economies if they wanted to keep on fighting. It was a situation the Americans then coolly continued to exploit in the 1920s and 1930s, as we shall see next time at the History Café. There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Café, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. 
go to our website historycafe.org and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more you'll find us on apple Podcasts, spotify and every other platform you can think of just look out for history cafe podcast with john and penelope if it's your thing Follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too.